Hi, I'm Eric Hoyt. I'm the author of Marine Protected Areas for Whales and the Encyclopedia of Whales, Dolphins, and Porpoises. I'm also Research Fellow for Whale and Dolphin Conservation in the UK and Co-Founder, Director of the Far East Russia Orca Project. I'm working with Whale and Dolphin Conservation and the IUCN Marine Mammal Protected Areas Task Force to map the oceans for important marine mammal areas. We may be coming to an ocean near you in 2020 or 2021. My dream for 2020 and beyond is that the orca captures in Russia have ended, the southern community off Vancouver Island begins to turn around, and that we can get back to the central business of ensuring that whales and humans in the North Pacific can live together. I would like to see 30% of the ocean designated as effective marine protected areas by 2030 and a greatly expanded census of marine life along with a massive cleanup of human activities in, on, around, and going into the ocean. Hi, I'm Mark Laren Young, author of Orcas Everywhere, and welcome to Scana 2020 and part one of our first ever two-part episode. Why two parts? Because our guest, Eric Hoyt, wrote the book on orcas. Orca, the whale called Killer. The fifth edition just came out. He's also written more than a dozen other books on marine life. He was on the scene for some of the earliest orca research. He was the first person to seriously investigate the status of orcas in captivity. Spoiler alert, he wasn't impressed. He wrote the book on whale watching and then rewrote the book on how people should watch whales. And now he's leading the fight to protect orcas in Russia. Two episodes? We could do two seasons with Eric and not run out of amazing things to talk about. As always, Scan is brought to you by our amazing and essential pod at Patreon.com, including Mike Whitley, Kara Middleton, Susie Venuta, Simon McNair, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Eagle Wing, and Yosef Wask. If you like what we're doing and want to hear more about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment, please join our Patreon pod. Even a dollar a month is a huge help because the more subscribers we get, the more our Patreon campaign is featured and the more sponsors we get. We do have all sorts of awesome perks for joining us, and we're trying to get enough support to release more episodes and provide proper transcripts of all of our interviews. Also, please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes with Robert Bateman, Daniel Polly, Takaya Blaney, Autumn Pelche, Robbie Bond, and many more amazing eco-heroes. Scanna is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, the publishers of Orcas Everywhere, and my two upcoming books, Orcas of the Sailor Sea, for elementary school readers, and Big Whales, Small World, a beautiful board book for babies who want to meet belugas, blue whales, and more. For more about my books for young readers, please visit orcaseverywhere.com. And now, Mr. Orca, Eric Hoyt, on Orcas Everywhere. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? Good, good. This is very exciting. So where am I reaching you? I'm in uh, West Dorset, um, about a mile from uh, the English Channel, and it's uh, sunset at the moment, uh, just uh, clear sky, uh, having having had the usual kind of uh, uh, cloud and rain today, but, uh, but it's a beautiful uh, evening here. Fantastic. So I've got a few million things to ask you about, but... Why don't we just start at the beginning? How did you get involved in the world of whales? This is uh, 1972, 73, and I was asked to be the sound man on a film expedition that was going to try and uh, film killer whales for the first time off of uh, Vancouver Island. And we um, uh, started off, we were in Victoria, we outfitted this boat 
with uh, no engine. It was kind of a crazy idea. I mean, it turns out that actually not having an engine is kind of respectful for what we know about the whales now. But for us, um, for the skipper, it was really just something. He was kind of a purist, and there was no room for a, an engine, he said. And it was a 1906 sailboat. You know, I, I got involved in this partly from from a, an interest in music and in film and not in whales because we really didn't know anything about killer whales at that time. So it was um, a bit of a, uh, as they say, a gonzo expedition to start with. And we ran into all sorts of problems right from the start because none of none of us except the skipper, there were four of us, None of us had uh, sailed before, and uh, we had a man overboard within the first day. Uh, oh, trying, my. <laughs> trying to go up the West Coast. Then the uh, skipper eventually relinquished the helm to uh, one other member of our team who thought he knew what he was doing, and the boat went up on the rocks in the middle of the night. I was sleeping down below and went headfirst into the cast iron stove and had a, um, an egg-sized lump for the next couple of weeks. And we really, um, you know, started off on a kind of a rough track. We had, then we got into this huge storm. Uh, but, you know, eventually things settled down, and we uh, picked up on how to sail a bit and uh, had some adventures without an engine, big north sweeps trying to get in and out of ports, and found ourselves up in Johnson Strait. So that was the beginning of what turned into 10 summers for me. But yeah, that, that's how I got involved. You know, it's kind of a roundabout way, but then I got really hooked on uh, killer whales, on orcas, and um, getting to know them as individuals, and that really um, opened the door. How did you make the shift from sound man to writer? Well, that's, yeah, that's another story. I was, I was always interested in writing. You know, I used to send off reviews to Rolling Stone every once in a while and, and never hear, heard anything. You know, I did stuff for my high school magazine, uh, film reviews and, and other articles. But uh, it, was, it was something that um, once I had spent a few years, uh, well, three, three years, three summers, with the whales in Johnson Strait, I realized that we had a story to tell. And that's when I crafted an article for the um, Pacific Discovery, which is the magazine still running of the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco, and sent it off and, and, uh, and got a good response. I mean, I, I think I was in search of something to say. However, when I got that article back, I proudly showed it to my father, who was a um, journalist, White House correspondent, actually, at one point, and a speechwriter, and, you know, had written all his life. And he proceeded to edit the article, already printed, and sent it back. Ouch! You know, and, you know, it was a humbling experience. But, you know, editing is, is a humbling experience. You learn to take it and learn from it. And um, a couple years later, when I was starting to realize that maybe this was a book, nobody had written a book on killer whales at that point. And, uh, you know, there, there was this history I was kind of interested in that I was learning about. The whole um, uh, capture business was still happening in British Columbia, you know, and, and we were able to, our, our small group were able to go out and watch the aftermath of a capture and put a hydrophone down and listen to some of those the whales that were captive. You know, so I realized there were a lot of dimensions to this story and I always kept a journal from very young, so I had had a lot of notes. So I asked my father, we've been talking back and forth, and he agreed to edit, you know, help me uh, kind of learn apprentice, as it were, to uh, for writing with him editing every draft. We didn't live in the same city, but I sent stuff. In those days, you had to send things away to get them edited. You know, you couldn't send them on email or PDFs or anything. But anyway, I um, started going through drafts. Then um, when I had a few chapters, I approached a publisher and um, got turned down, finally got some interest, but not a contract from one publisher. But they wanted it com the book completely different. 
went back and rewrote it. Actually, at one point, I, I remember going going back to um, the draft, ripping everything up. And I spent from, after getting back from one of those summers, the fourth or fifth summer, I spent from September until Christmas in the uh, UBC library writing every day, showing up at 8 o'clock when they opened, and uh, writing all day, going out to a cafe to edit text in the afternoon, something that pattern that I still do. After, after uh, three and a half months, I went home for Christmas and I read it after I got back and realized it was not very good. In fact, it was garbage and I, I threw it out. And so I started again. So I had a lot of false starts. And I think I, I reckoned at one point I had 13 drafts of that, which was, wow. you know, that, that, was my, that was my learning curve. You know, it was a very steep learning curve. But, you know, just, just because I had read a lot, you know, and I, you know, had some flair for English and, you know, I thought, okay, I can learn how to do this. Well, it, it took the better part of three and a half years to pull it together and then managed to get an agent, a New York agent. And then it was turned down by 22 publishers. And finally, one, one of them, uh, one more, was interested. And um, that, that was Dutton, a big publisher in New York. So that was a great, great feeling. And then, uh, you know, and, and then I had to essentially uh, finish writing. It had another year to pull it all together. Yeah, so that's the sort of long, tangled tale of learning by doing. But I think the interesting thing was I, I didn't want to go to journalism school. I mean, I actually suggested it to my father. And he said, no, I can teach you much more efficiently you know, just through editing. And, you know, I, I don't know if it was more efficient or not. It did take a long time. But the exciting thing was for me was that I was able to sell articles almost from the beginning and had a couple of film columns in uh, Canadian magazines and then, you know, ended up writing for Canadian Geographic and BBC Wildlife and eventually Equinox regular stories. That was a magazine that started in the early 80s, and then eventually National Geographic, but that was after the book came out. I, I decided I was going to write, you know, that I was going to use that as my way of learning, you know, and if I made a lot of mistakes and I got turned down, that was fine. I would just keep going and keep learning from it and keep selling stuff along the way. That's a long-winded story of the, the writing, the beginning part of the writing. I'm still learning. Can you talk about what caught your imagination about those orcas in the first place? The fact that we could identify them as individuals, which Paul Spong had started doing. He was up there when we arrived and had, had been coming up for a couple of summers, but no one else was up there. Then about two weeks later, Mike Big and Ian McCaskey from the Pacific Biological Station began their study in Johnson Strait doing photo ID in the field. They'd had an annual census every year that people up and down the coast were contributing to, to count killer whales, and it was getting a lot of local interest. But that, that was the first time that August 1973 that Mike Big, who's really the father of killer whale research in the world, you know, he put together the technique for photo identification with Ian McCaskey and others. And, and I think the... Um, the thing that was interesting was that, yes, yes, we could identify some just on site, you know, like Stubbs and Nicola, you know, whose dorsal fins are kind of obvious from the way from their names. And Wavy was a big bull with a wavy dorsal fin. But, you know, the fact that Mike figured out that if you got a sharp photograph, you could identify any of them and all of the dorsal fin and the saddle patch and you know, if you could get a few more markings, that was that was great. And but you know, that was that was just a great time to have been up there in Johnson Strait and realize that you know we were we were making exchanges with Mike. He would come around our boat, and you know we'd exchange information. And Graham Ellis was up there as well that first year. Uh, he hadn't joined Mike yet, but was going to shortly. It was just a great time for, uh, you know, not knowing anything at all and just kind of learning from the ground up. And I think if I hadn't been there 
right when the scientists were, you know, starting to learn and sort of learning along with the scientists and, and realizing that this was a great big open area, you know, that wasn't being written about. And, uh, you know, and there were no papers on wild killer whales, the behavior, the social behavior, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it was just such so new. And, of course, we had this great background about killer whales, you know, their legendary features, you know, that we all know, you know, the fastest, most powerful animal in the ocean, all that stuff. Maybe not quite the fastest, it turns out, but, but they were certainly the most capable and no enemy, except we used to say no enemy but man with a gun. And there were, there were shootings that first summer and a couple of summers after. And we did see occasionally uh, bullet holes in wow. the in the bodies, you know. So there there were um, people still shooting. People, you know, feared or or just uh, you know target practice. It was another era. We sort of saw that change. That was really exciting to see people, you know, starting to really turn on what they thought about killer whales. Of course, at the same time, you had the intriguing aspect of killer whales in um, captivity. When I say intriguing, it was intriguing back then because there were certain things about their personalities and behavior that people knew. And, and because they've been captured near where we were, it was a kind of eye-opener that all this was happening right around us. And part of Mike Big's study was to try and figure out how many there were, you know, if they're if they were endangered or whether, in fact, the populations could support a capture industry. You know, of course, the captors used to say that, oh, there's no problem there. You know, there are thousands of them out there. Every time we go out, we see thousands of them. It turns out, well, no, there were just uh, actually about 200 in the northern community and around, you know, less than 100 in the southern community. And then and then a few... Um, transients at that time, not nearly as many, I think, as are there now, were going through. So we're talking in the hundreds, not in the thousands. And, you know, there was a lot of denial about the numbers from the captors uh, and, and also questioning of Mike Biggs' method and, you know, whether you could actually identify them as individuals, which is kind of surprising in, in retrospect. And, you know, and the fact that we have probably 50... Uh, research projects going on all over the world that are using photo ID, you know, to identify them. So it was it was just an exciting period. I think we were starting to realize with the capture industry, it was late 70s when we realized that some of the whales that were in captivity were from the same pods that we were seeing every day. And that was that was really chilling when we realized that. And I think Graham Ellis was one of the first ones because he was a former killer whale trainer at uh, Sealand of the Pacific in Victoria. He had spent time at Pender Harbor and, and Petter Bay and, uh, you know, had been um, gotten to know the whales probably better than anybody at that stage because not only did he get to know them when they had just been captured day in and day out trying to get them to feed and all that, but he um, then transitioned to working with them in the wild and uh, really became probably the sharpest observer of anybody I, I ever met. And uh, I think being exposed to that, you know, being able to just talk to these people and uh, find out all these great stories you know, Graham's stories were fantastic. All, all of the, all of the people, Paul Spong, all of them. And, um, that made me, uh, just realize this was a really interesting animal, wild that, you know, there had been books on, uh, you know, gorillas and on, uh, uh, elephants and land mammals. But really we were just starting to open the door with whales and learn about them as individuals and to be able to talk about for the first time, their families and their um, communities and, and listen to their sounds. And, you know, John Ford was uh, coming up there a few years later in the late 70s and starting to sort out the dialects. And it was just getting more and more exciting. 
I think that paints a picture of how attractive they were to us in those early days, even though we, we didn't know very much. It seemed like we were summer. There was a, another huge learning curve on all that stuff that was going on. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? It was July 12, 1973, and we saw five whales just outside of Robson Bight and spent most of the day you know, with them and kind of watching them and, and being really, um, really impressed with their you know, sort of raw power. Of course, we could only see when they came to the surface, but it, it was a wonderful um, early experience. I had seen Haida, the killer whale that was in um, uh, Sealand of the Pacific, and Scana. I think Scana was there then in at the Vancouver Aquarium, but I hadn't. Uh, that was my first time seeing wild killer whales. Wow. Do you remember what struck you? Do you remember any any sort of aspect of the experience? I'm being attuned to sound. I, I love the... Um, explosions of the um, spouts, you know, always that. I think I wrote it out the first time I heard it in my journal. I wrote it out as, which was K-A-W-O-O-F. Because it was nice. a, yeah, it was not, it was not a single syllable. It was really a kawoof, you know, when you slowed it down, you know, as, as it emerged from the blowhole. And then as you got closer, you actually heard a kind of, sucking sound right after the coof you heard that sucking sound as they sucked in air so it, it was a kind of a triple barrel sound that you know we became used to after a while but was re very striking at the beginning very cool now weren't some of the earliest experiments and interactions built around music i had brought up a an electronic music synthesizer. I had been writing music for videos, and I had started one film, and and I went on to do more film uh, in the summers that I was going back with the whales. But the idea was that we could try to imitate one of their sounds and see what happened. And so I, you know, I recorded them. We had hydrophones, which are underwater microphones, that we could um, drop over the side, and. I think the second encounter with them, I recorded them, and I started to get these, um, you know, typical calls that the A-pods were making, and I practiced that sound on the synthesizer, and and then um, a few, I think, weeks later, we had a we had a speaker on the boat, underwater speaker, and I played this sound, and you know, nothing happened right away, but then a little while later, I played it again when the whales were uh, a little bit closer, although I don't think it mattered very much because the sound travels very well underwater. It was probably that they were more disposed at that point because within a second of making this call, this sort of three-note call, I had a perfect mimic of the sound I had put in, which was, it was similar to their call, but it wasn't, the exact call you know it had my sort of human accent and they mimicked my human accent and it was more than one it sounded like three individuals at the same time it sounded like more than two i don't know for sure but you know i just about fell out of the boat when it happened and you know and and uh, a few minutes later played it for the others on the boat and everybody was just gasping that they made this reply and, of course, you know, we wondered, what does that mean? And, you know, there were a couple other times that summer when we exchanged other sounds. You know, we also tried playing Stevie Wonder, had his first album out as, a, uh, as an adult that summer, which we were all listening to with Superstition and Sunshine of Your Life, you know, the Beatles and all that. So we were, we were playing various things. You couldn't judge whether it had any impact or not, but... We thought, oh, okay, that's what we can offer them. And it was very naive. But you have to remember, we were in our early 20s, and this was very close to post-60s. So, um, you know, we, we had some fun with that. And, but then later I realized that the fact that the calves are born without any sounds of the pod and that they learn their dialect through their mother, you know, maybe sometimes others, some other members of the pod, but mainly their mother, Therefore, mimicry must be a really important thing. And I think, I think that's shown also in captivity. It's shown, you know, other people have 
have noted that since. So the mimicry is not a sign of intelligence or anything else. It's the way they learn their own dialect. You know, it's interesting that they chose to respond to us. And I think they probably did know where it was coming from, you know, that it wasn't another whale. Um, but that's just my gut feeling. But anyway, so I, I think it was interesting that first summer, but there wasn't anything we could do with it beyond that. That's the way I felt. And there was so much to learn, you know, in so many other areas. So it, after we had done it, I thought, well, that, that's really interesting. That's fun. But let's find out what these uh, whales are really like. Can you talk about some of the, the things you encountered with that? Like any whales that struck you as having particularly interesting personalities or any behaviors that really knocked you out in, in those early encounters? Dubs was... Um, one of my favorites. She was an old female and had a mangled dorsal fin, kind of almost like sawn off very roughly. Uh, she was actually A1 in the catalog. So the very first whale ever photo identified in Mike Biggs' catalog. And of course, before the JKs and Ls, which were quite a ways down the line because, you know, they didn't turn to the uh, Southern community with uh, Ken Balcom until um, the mid-70s, so by 76, I think. So by then, Mike Big had already gone through the A's, B's, C's, D's, and so on. And the um, I think A1 Stubbs, we felt close to her, you know, it's partly she was kind of dragging behind the pod a lot of times. Sometimes you'd see her almost all alone, and then you'd realize, well, the pod's way, you know, far away because she was moving slowly. And... Um, Occasionally, you'd see her with other young individuals, and we were starting to get a sense that there was this role by the older females of looking after young that wasn't necessarily their own young, might be, you know, their grandkids, so to speak. So she was one, and Nicola, who was actually A2, was another one, and very much a favorite of mine as well. And she was just very approachable and uh, would approach us as well. And there didn't seem to be a lot of fear or any fear, really, in those early years. And I don't, I don't think we weren't going charging after them. I mean, partly in a sailboat, you can't go charging after anything. So, you know, we were also uh, using for the first time canoes. In fact, most of the film that first summer was taken from a canoe, not an ocean-going canoe even, really, when the whales were resting on the surface, sleeping. At first, we didn't realize that. That was actually the first time we saw them sleeping extensively over a four-hour period, you know, just coming up and down almost in the same place uh, and lying on the surface in the kind of, we didn't use the word matrilines, that, you know, Mike Big came up with that word quite a few years later. But in essence, that's what the kind of positions they were in. But we could see the whole pod, Stubbs's pod with Nicola and Wavy and and all the others stretching out around, right in Robson Bight, all resting on the surface. And the two cameramen just paddled all around them and, uh, cool. and quietly, without disturbing them or waking them up, filming them. There were a lot of interesting things that we'd never done before. Another one was being up in the middle of the night. We decided we were going to do all-night whale watches because the whales kept coming in through... Robson Bight and Boat Bay, you know, that sort of area right around uh, Craycroft Point across to Robson Bight and up through Blackfish Sound, you know, opposite where Paul Spong is. And that kind of pattern in the summer, especially in July and August, they just seem to make a regular run. And we wanted to know, well, is this happening at night as well? And so we would paddle our canoe out or row a, a dinghy out when it was calm. And I remember several all night whale watches just lying in the dinghy looking at more stars than I'd ever seen in my life, time, <laughs> times five at least, and uh, having these whales come through and not really being able to see them because, I mean, they're black coming up and everything. But, you know, your eyes sort of slowly attuned to it, but also looking over the side and there was so much bioluminescence in the water that you could see the schools of fish going and occasionally you'd see a a seal chasing the fish, or see the seal poke his head up, and the, the stars from the bioluminescence would kind of float off his head. And then um, actually seeing whales come through and leave these trails, you know, being close enough that you could see 
some bioluminescence coming off their bodies. That was just magical. Kind of nerve-wracking because you, you don't know if you're going to, you wouldn't want to get hit. You're about to get tipped and it wouldn't take much. The wake from a, from a surfacing, a sort of aggressive surfacing could swamp your boat. You know, we were always watching out for the cruise ships that came up and, you know, because if they did, then you really had to uh, get back to the main boat or to the shore because the, the wake and the night especially could swamp you. That is one aspect. But there were a lot of events like that. It was a kind of feeling of like living with the whale, that we had this privileged time, you know, this opportunity to just uh, spend with them. And, you know, I treasured it. I really did. I you know I had one summer there when I didn't. Some of us were going back, you know, going to Alert Bay, which was the city at that point. There was a logging road to get down to Victoria or Vancouver, so it was much more difficult than it is today. You know, it took most of a day on these logging roads. Um, so, you know, we were less connected, but I didn't want to go back. A couple of us had to go back to fix camera gear or for other reasons, you know, for a week or so. But I had the whole whole summers, and that was um, that was an amazing experience. This wasn't too far away from the era when people were afraid that killer whales would kill humans. Was anybody on your expedition ever afraid of the orcas in the early going? You know, I think we played it down a lot in our own minds. We thought, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what evidence we really had. I mean, you, we could see in captivity that they weren't, at that point, they weren't harming uh, trainers. So, you know, we were hearing a few stories from certain trainers that we knew, like Graham, you know, who had had experience, like Graham Ellis, that uh, they would rough people up and they would do things. But we, I think we were very trusting. You know, it's the kind of thing you have with a stranger who's a human. You know, I see Malcolm Gladwell's got a, a book just come out on this whole subject. I don't know if he probably doesn't uh, touch on whales or other animals and how we act toward them, but it's rather amazing how trusting as a species humans normally are now of course a lot of people didn't trust them then there was a pervasive fear that a lot of people had about killer whales it you know maybe i think some of the stories you know there was a famous account um by daniel eschricht who actually gave his name to the gray whale eschricht today he was a danish danish or german biologist in the 1800s who found 15 seals and 14 porpoises, something like that, in the stomach of one male killer whale off of uh, Denmark and uh, published that. And that I found when I was doing my research that everywhere that was quoted, you know, and that was a sort of a, a paper that was supposed to prove that orcas were voracious and dangerous and there were diving manuals. I found great quotes. Like there was a diving manual around that said the only um, cure for a killer whale encounter is resurrection, you know, or something oh like my. that. <laughs> you know, there were there were definitely a lot of people writing about killer whales, and and you know, even going back to uh, Pliny, uh, the elder, he, you know, that was one of the first accounts in BC, and and uh, that was a distinctively negative account of of killer whales. Uh, so they hadn't had much good press all along. So it was in the background of that. And people, you know, they, yes, they were shooting at them. They're, they're not shooting at them because they're afraid. Because, you know, if you're in a boat, well, certainly if they're coming at your boat, which they do, there is a certain amount of depredation, learning how to take fish off hooks and that sort of thing, which st still happens in different parts of the world. And I don't know that it happened in BC. I could be wrong on that, but the perception may have been with fishermen that they were taking salmon out of their nets or taking all the salmon, eating all the salmon if they're so voracious and shoot them. And there was that famous machine gun set up near Campbell River, I think, uh, that was supposed to uh, machine gun killer whales. Of course, it was never fired. But the intention was there. That was, what, when was that, the 50s? Yep. Um, yeah. And um, in the 60s, there were U.S. Air Force did strafing runs around uh, Iceland, shooting at killer whales. 
So there were these things going on, which were, you know, speak about our times as well. You know, how people related to the wild and to animals and to wild things that they didn't know about. You know, that's part of it, you know, is our incredible ignorance about about them. But why why we weren't afraid. I think, you know, we were reading uh, John Lilly, you know, the mind of the dolphin, and we knew that killer whales were, well, they were the largest dolphin, uh, never mind that they actually ate dolphins sometimes, but, uh, or some of them did. We, did. we didn't know at that time, actually. Uh, it was really the first summer or two that we realized that killer whales weren't just eating everything that was out there. They were specifically eating certain foods. Amazing to think that we didn't know that. It's such a given right now that there are these different kinds of killer whales that you know are conservative, fussy eaters that only eat certain kinds of food. And um, I, I do remember one of the first time that we saw killer whales feeding side by side with minke whales, and they were touching the minke whales. And, and we had read about, uh, you know, that Mickey Wills were found in the stomachs. There were some papers on that, even back then. So it was a revelation that whales were, were different, and, you know, and maybe the fish eaters aren't dangerous. There, were, there was a kind of feeling, if, if we ran into some of the marine mammal-eating killer whales, we might not swim with them or jump in the water with them or want to fall in the water with them. And I did have a couple of uh, small boat encounters with them, and they, their behavior was just so different. Patrolling the coast and charging along, and they looked different. You know, they looked, I don't know how to describe it, but because they were so unfamiliar to us, it made it made us a bit nervous, uh, even though there's no case of a killer whale, mammal eater or fish eater, ever killing a human in the wild. Talk about the new edition of your book. Five editions of Orca. That is so cool. So what prompted the latest edition? And could you talk about some of the things that you've added? I've been wanting to do this for a few years because the previous edition was, you know, a couple decades ago. The book was in print until only a, a, a few years ago, only, I don't know, three or four years ago, and then finally went out of print, the previous edition. And I really wanted to keep it alive. I was still getting interest in it and people asking about it. But it really needed a complete redesign. And I didn't want to lose the original story because I thought that was valid in terms of what it was like to discover, to learn about this species for the first time. You know, it's really hard to, to go back to when you didn't know anything. But, you know, I had the great fortune to be able to have been, been there at that time. And, and so I wanted to keep that part of the book. But then what I did was I prepared a prologue to kind of set the scene with some of the things we've learned since then. But then I, I wrote in the book, you know, for those who haven't read it, just don't worry about what's happened since. Let's go back to this, just what it was like when we didn't know anything. Enjoy that. And then at the end, I added about 20,000 words to uh, talk about the uh, Russian killer whale work that I've been doing with uh, Russian biologists the last 20 years now on the other side of the North Pacific, which has a lot of really interesting parallels and comparisons with our British Columbia and Washington State orcas. And I also, you know, took some time to go around different parts of the world and, and talk about some of the things we've learned and, of course, bring it up to date in terms of the capture industry, which has moved into Russia and, you know, what's happened with that even quite recently. Uh, it was just a great chance to talk about, in a way, it's kind of like my life with Orca and what Orca's taught me. Because the big thing that they taught me, apart from all the things, you know, how to write a book, for that matter, <laughs> and uh, the, the big thing that they taught me was about the importance of habitat. You know, we were thinking very much in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, you know, Greenpeace was just forming in Vancouver in the early 70s around this time. And we were all thinking about saving the whales. You know, that was the big uh, banner, save the whales, save the whales. And when we got to uh, Johnson Strait and started seeing that the same whales were coming back to the same areas every year, every summer, 
and actually spending longer than the summer, you know, early and late, uh, as we spent more time with them during the year. And there was habitat. There was habitat that they needed protecting. And, you know, when um, loggers, McMillan Blodell Company at that time, decided they were going to log this last unlogged, untouched river valley uh, right at Robson Bight, and they were going to boom logs in Robson Bight, you know, we started getting mad. You know, I, th I think British Columbia has a way of politicizing you. You know, I, I came from the east. You know, I'd li I lived in Toronto before BC and in the States. And when I came out, and I was not nearly really a conservation person in my teens, and I got out to BC in my late teens for the first time, and there are these big trees, and there's, you know, all this incredible ocean and mountains, and, and suddenly you start to get connected to the land and the water in a way that you're not in a city back east or in a place that, where the trees have been cut down long ago and it's into second or third or fourth growth. We were really politicized by this fact that the Macmillan Bloedel Company had the right to cut down all the trees in this valley. The killer whales were coming in to Robson Bight to rest, to rub on the, on the rubbing rocks that were not far from there, which is another whole story, and feed on the salmon. And you know, we knew the connection between, we were learning the connection between trees and salmon, you know, being cut down too close to rivers. And of course, their plan was saying they weren't going to be ruining the salmon and this and that. But the vice president of logging, I, I called him up. I, I started doing some stories actually for BC Outdoors magazine and Defenders of Wildlife in Washington, D.C., and and others around this time, and there were three or four of us that were really trying to look at this, and Jim Barrowman was another one who was really leading it, and I called up this guy. Well, I was trying to reach him at his office, you know, day after day, couldn't get through, and finally got him at home, and I think he'd had a few drinks, and he was very forthcoming, and he, you know, I said, this logging plant, you know, the whales spend a lot of time in there, and he said, oh, that's no problem. Those blackfish, they travel all the time. You know, they can go anywhere and they don't need to go there. And I said, do you know they're rubbing there, uh, you know, on the rocks and the beaches and stuff? And, and he said, oh, well, that's no problem. They'll probably just rub on the logs, you know, once we get them out there. Oh, wow. You know, I wrote it down. It was a nice quote, <laughs> you know, and that was in the story, uh, along with opinions from Mike Big. You know, uh, an interview with him, uh, uh, John Ford, uh, Bristol Foster, who was the ecological reserves director at the time, who was supporting the idea that they needed habitat. And so, you know, the amazing thing was that after, uh, you know, doing posters and getting more and more people involved in this, doing interviews and that sort of thing, we uh, managed to, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate in BC and, and um, they were stopped from doing this this log boom, they were still, you know, they wanted to take the, they do, they thought it was too expensive to take the logs out the top of the river valley. They wanted to boom them like they'd done in Beaver Cove and other places. They were not allowed to do that. And the area was made an ecological reserve, the land area. What we subsequently learned was it was just took years to learn this, but that it was far too small. You know, we didn't ask for anywhere near enough. Of course, we didn't have the science to back it. You know, the papers weren't published by then. You know, Mike Big and John Ford hadn't really published anything. You know, it was just, this is like early 80s. And, um, you know, they'd given kind of expert views that were really helpful in terms of what data they had, but hadn't published papers that would support where their habitat is and all that. So that, you know, that was kind of a, the start of a path for me that led me into looking into a lot of different species of whales and and dolphins and even other marine mammals and looking at the habitat needs. And I spent about 10 years working on two editions of a book on marine protected areas for whales, dolphins, and porpoises. When I came out with the first edition of that book in 2004, it was still a really strange idea that you might be able to protect whales, you know, that were 
as far as people knew, were wandering all over the ocean. Although there were a couple of cases like uh, Scammon's Lagoon and the Grey Whale Lagoons that were protected. But that was kind of an easy case because the whales went right into a lagoon and were known to, to breed there and give birth to calves. But the idea that whales in the open ocean and dolphins had habitat really had to wait until we had all this photo ID work that was coming out all over the world because this this became a revolution. You know, and Mike Big was at the start of it along with some people doing humpback whale work off of uh, Maine and Massachusetts, Scott Krauss and uh, Steve Katona, and then Southern Right Whale work with Roger Payne, photo ID for the first time. This was all happening around 1973-74, and Jim Darling had the first paper on a photo ID'd gray whale and was subsequently heading off in the late 70s to photo ID humpback whales around Hawaii and then starting to compare them for the first time with researchers who were, who were then just starting off Alaska and realizing it was the same whales moving from the two, two areas. So, you know, this was terribly exciting, but it was starting the output from that, the conservation implications of that were the fact that there was habitat, there were habitat needs, you know, that, that needed to be addressed. And so that really, that's, that's been my, or one of my main paths, you know, probably uh, it continues today. I mean, there's a lot more I can say about this, but um, in terms of my current work, but this is um, my passion. I, and I really, I do owe it to uh, killer whales. Those early years, they, they taught me the importance of habitat. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like what we're doing and want to help us share stories about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment, please join our pod at patreon.com. Subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter, follow us on social media, and share the show with your friends. Heck, share it with your enemies too. Share it with strangers. And be sure to stay tuned for our next episode where Eric Hoyt talks about orcas in Russia and the challenges orcas everywhere are facing today. If the show doesn't work for you, I'm Joe Rogan. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu with audio assist from Spencer Pickles. Scanna's new theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson and is featured on her essential album, Songs for a Lost Pod. As I record this, a pipeline protest is on the verge of shutting down Canada. The RCMP appears to be on the verge of declaring war with the Wet'suwet'en, and they've banned media from filming or covering what they're doing. So we wanted to end off with a classic by Stan Rogers about whaling and oil wells. This is Free in the Harbor. Well, it's black this shit play in Hermitage Bay from Bush through across to Guas Island. They broach and they spout and they lift their flukes out And they wave to a town that is dying Now it's many's the boat that has bite on the foam Hauling away, hauling away But there's many more fellas been leaving their homes Where the whales make free in the harbor It's a portage in Maine You'll see them again on their way To the hills of Alberta With lopsided grins They waggle their chins And they brag of the wage they'll be earning Then it's quick, pull the string, boys And get the tool out Call it away, call it away But just two years ago you could 
hear the same shout where the whales take free in the harbor. Free in the harbor. The blackfish are sporting again. Free in the harbor. Untroubled by comings and goings of men. Did pursue them as oil from the sea, calling away, calling away. Now they're Calgary roughnecks from Hermitage Bay, where the whales make free harbor. Well, it's a living they found. Deep in the ground, and if there's doubts, it's best they ignore them. Nor think on the bones, the crosses and stones of their fathers that came there before them. In the taverns of Edmonton, fishermen shout, Haul it away, haul it away. Then have three hundred years buried up by the bay. Where the whales make free in the harbor Free in the harbor The blackfish are sporting again Free in the harbor Untroubled by comings and goings of men Who once did pursue them as oil from the sea Falling away, falling away Now they're Calgary roughnecks from Hermitage Bay Where the whales make free in the harbor Free in the harbor Again Again